Psalm 118, starting, starting in verse 19, and I want to read through the end of this psalm. Please follow along with me. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. And he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. I want to preach to you this morning on a, 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 using a, a title that I'm stealing from verse 28. And that is simply this, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Father, we ask as we come into this text that you would open our eyes, that you would speak to us through this psalm, that we might know that your steadfast love endures forever, and as a result, I pray that we will be thankful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If tomorrow you had to wake up at 8 a.m. and go to work or school, and you had a long Monday ahead of you, that is going to shape your attitude today. If tomorrow you had to appear before a judge in court for a crime that you did, and you know you're guilty, What you believe about tomorrow is going to shape your attitude today. If tomorrow you're waking up early in the morning to go on an all-expense-paid trip to the Bahamas, you see, what you believe about tomorrow shapes your attitude today. As we consider our spiritual reality, as we consider our hope that we have in Christ for all of eternity, I wonder if your attitude today reflects what you believe about tomorrow. And I wonder if we need to really consider what we believe about tomorrow and allow that to shape our attitude today. Because let's be honest, a lot of us don't always have the best attitude, do we? Sometimes even Christians are walking around acting like the world has turned 
against you, that everything is falling down around you, that you have no hope, discouraged, frustrated. Thankfulness before God is often not part of our vocabulary. When we think about before God, we might think of sorrow before God or guilt before God or fear before God, but we often don't think of thankfulness before God. And our daily attitudes in the midst of the chaos don't always demonstrate the thankfulness that we ought to have as we consider tomorrow. Now, admittedly, this world is filled with pain. It's filled with problems. It's filled with chaos. And as a result, we allow the circumstances of our day to take our eyes off of tomorrow, the hope that we have in Christ. And so often we walk around, and we might not confess this with our mouth, but we act like God has given up on us. Or maybe we act like we have given up on God. I want to bring you a word this morning from Psalm 118 and encourage you that if you are in Christ, you worship a God who will not give up on you. Let me say that again. Even as we are tempted to give up on God, feeling as if God has given up on us, if we are in Christ, we worship a God who will not give up on us on us, on you. No matter how hard you've fallen, the covenantal love that we have in God through Jesus Christ will keep you. In this Psalm 118, verse 1 begins, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That chorus becomes a refrain that frames this entire psalm. It works as bookends, if you would. In the last verse, we see that same chorus repeated. Verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. That word, steadfast love, In the ESV, translated in the ESV, steadfast love. Everybody say it, steadfast love. This is a word that refers to a covenantal love. It's not merely a love of feeling or emotions or or even temporarily doing good for someone else, but it's a love that's bound by a covenant. In the same way that a marriage covenant binds a husband's love to his wife, God has bound his love to us through a covenant. It's called the new covenant. Sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because of this covenant, we have a love in God that is secure. And so we could rightly translate this a covenantal love. His covenantal love, it endures forever. 
Now, some of you might be wondering why we're not in Luke today. We've been in a series in the Gospel of Luke for a couple uh, of months now, and uh, today we're just taking a a one-week detour into the Psalms. Today is what? Anybody know? Palm Sunday. That's right. Where, why don't we give out palms? I don't know. We just don't. <laughs> so if you came to church because you wanted to get a palm, sorry. Go around the corner. They might give you one after the service, all right? Um, but today is Palm Sunday, and, uh, and I wanted to just explore a little bit this Palm Sunday event. Just in case you're new to Christianity, let me, let me set the stage for you. On Palm Sunday, it was the week of Jesus' death, or the, the week right before Jesus' death. And, uh, and on that Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a colt. He rides into the city, and his disciples and then all of these other Jesus followers kind of come around him. And it says they cut down palm branches, and they lay palm branches in his pathway. And so he, as he rides into Jerusalem, he rides across this path of palm branches. Now, as they're laying down these branches, they're singing from the Psalms. In particular, they're singing from Psalm 118. And so I want to do an exposition this morning of Psalm 118 and get a greater idea as to this Palm Sunday event. What's happening? I want to know, why are they singing Psalm 118 as Jesus comes into Jerusalem? And so we're going to look at the latter half of Psalm 118 this morning. It's a psalm written by David. It's a psalm likely written after a time of oppression as David was surrounded by his enemies The first half of Psalm 118 talks about the torment of his enemies, and he essentially says it's better to trust in God than in man. And then the second half of Psalm 118 is a Thanksgiving liturgy. It would have regularly regularly been used in Jewish worship, particularly after certain seasons of oppression as they're coming out of torment by enemies. So I picture this psalm being used maybe uh, after a a battle with the Philistines, and they're they're coming home, this procession, back into Jerusalem, and they're shouting the psalm at the top of their lungs as they're heading to the temple. Or maybe after uh, captivity and Babylon as they're coming back into Jerusalem, using this psalm in their worship as thanksgiving for the deliverance for the nation. Now, in Jesus' day, the oppressor wasn't the Philistines or Babylon, but the oppressor was Rome. So as Jesus is coming into the city, and they're laying palm branches at his feet, palm branches being a symbol of victory, it was actually a symbol of Jewish nationalism that we are freed from the, world, uh, from, from the enemies around us. As they're laying these palms before him, as they're shouting Psalm 118, I believe what's going on in their mind is, is, is this. This is the Messiah. And he is the one who is about to deliver us from the empire 
of Rome. Now, many of them probably misunderstood what they were celebrating. Many of them misunderstood who they were celebrating. What they might not have known on that Palm Sunday was that he's not a military warlord who's coming to take up arms right then and there against Rome. But rather, he's coming as a spiritual warrior to do a work against sin and death that swords against Rome could never do. He's coming into Jerusalem to take up arms against the real enemy. And that is going to lead him to the cross. And that's where he is going to do battle with our sin and our guilt. And three days later on Easter Sunday, rise from the dead. While the original heralds of Psalm 118 on Palm Sunday probably had no clue the significance of what they were saying. What they were saying was actually true and right. They were right to apply Psalm 118 to Jesus. And I want to show you the truthfulness in what they were singing that, 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 that Sunday morning. I want to show you the continual relevance for Psalm, from Psalm 118 uh, for our lives today as we think of ourselves as people who are in Christ. If I could summarize this psalm, I would summarize it this way. Thankfulness flows out of secured love. Thankfulness flows out of secured love. What I believe this psalm is telling us is that because of God's steadfast love for us, for his people, we are to be thankful. It's easy for us to encourage other people. It's easy for us to tell others, hey, God loves you. Be joyful, be thankful for his love. But I want to ask you this question. Are you secure in God's love? Are you secure? In God's love. Does God's steadfast love well up thankfulness in your life? How is it that we can be secure in God's love? Well, let's work through this text together first. In verse 19 and 20, because of Christ's righteousness, we are secure. Because of Christ's righteousness, we are secure. My kids have a storybook on their shelf. And it's about a man who's going to appear before a king. And on his way to the king, he falls uh, in, in, into mud. And he has mud all over his robe. He cannot now appear before the king in the presence of the king because he has filthy garments in his sorrow, he's walking away, and a man comes who happens to be the prince. And the prince says, hey, I have a solution for you. And the prince gives the man his own robe and places his robe over the filthy robe of the sorrowful man. 
Now, wearing the robe of the prince, this man can walk into the presence of the king. As we get into this psalm, what we see first is this procession of people heading toward the temple. The worship leader cries out in verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness. That would be a reference for for the temple. As they're coming into Jerusalem, that is their goal. And he cries out, let's open the gates. The response from the people comes in verse 20. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. The temple for Israel was the very presence of God. In order to enter through the gates of the temple, you had to be pure. You had to be righteous. The priests and the people would go through all sorts of purification rites, all sorts of ceremonial cleansing in order to walk through these gates and and to walk into the presence of God in the temple. But ultimately, that was not enough. In order to come into God's presence, there would not merely need need to be ceremonial rites, but rather real righteousness. Now, righteousness as a requirement to enter the temple, aka the presence of God, poses a problem for you and I. And that problem is what, church? We are not righteous is the correct answer. We're sinners. The Bible says there are none who are righteous. No, not one. And we need to be righteous. Only the righteous may enter into the temple. Well, what do we find in Christ? I'm going to have to move quickly through some theology here. But what we find in Christ is the righteousness that we need in order to enter into the presence of of God. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he is the one in this procession shouting, open the gates. Only the righteous may enter. Jesus is the one, the only one, who is qualified to enter into the temple on his own merit, to enter into the very presence of God, because Jesus is the temple. Uh, Jesus is the presence of God. As a matter of fact, in one of the Gospels, directly after this Palm Sunday event, Jesus goes in and flips some tables in the temple and says, you guys don't even understand what's going on. You have no clue how perverted you've made this building. And Jesus stands as the righteous one in the temple. The one who, 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 whose very presence is the presence of God. Now, how is it that we can then stand before the presence of God? Quick answer is, Jesus gives us his garments. He takes his robe of righteousness and he places it over the believer. And he says, enter into my presence. Enter into the presence of the king. Enter into the presence of the triune God. You can come into the temple with the righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. Amen? In Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, it says, Blessed are those whose robes are washed, that they may enter the city by the gates. Listen, this is why this psalm is framed with mercy. It's all about mercy. It's all about steadfast love. It's all about what God is doing for us, not about what we are doing for God. We don't come into the presence of God with actual righteousness. We come into the presence of God being declared righteous because we are in Jesus Christ. And there's a difference between those two. Now, those of us who are works-oriented, you're trying to do something to make yourself right before God. What you have to realize is that you get addicted to works. You're on this endless rat race and you can't stop. W.S. Plummer, commenting on this text, said this. He said, the most difficult thing ever undertaken by God's ministers is to persuade sinners to heartily embrace offered mercy. Did you get what he was saying there? What he's saying is this, is the hardest thing for Joel Kurz is not to get people following rules. The hardest thing for any preacher is not to get people to to look a certain way and to act a certain way. That's actually fairly easy. What Plummer is saying, and I think he's right, is this. The hardest thing for any preacher is to get people to receive the mercy of God. Because as sinners, we are so prone to works-based righteousness. And we hear of the grace of God. We hear of the mercy of God, and we shun it because I can do it on my own. I can pick myself up. I got this. This is my land. This is my life. I am, I'm the one that controls it. I just heard a song yesterday on the radio. He says, I, I know that there's a God above me, but I'm the God of everything below. That is the mentality of the sinner. If I am the God of everything below, I need no mercy from the God above. But if I can't do anything about my life, then by all means, I need the mercy of God. We have to come humbly into this psalm. And fall on our knees before God and realize we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We need his mercy. We need to receive his garments. We need to receive his gift so that we can be in God's presence. We are secure in God's presence because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we are secure in God's presence because of Christ's success. Because of his success. When I was in high school, I worked in a lumber yard, and the most annoying part of working in the lumber yard was when builders would come in, and they would literally be throwing aside two-by-fours, looking for the, the perfect, you know, straight, finest two-by-four. And, uh, and I'm the guy, I'm the grunt work that has to clean it all up. And so I'm watching this dude shuffle through these things and, and literally casting aside warped two-by-fours that aren't worthy of his building. And then, you know, you go through that a couple times, you end up with basically a pile of misfits, a pile of two-by-fours that are good for nothing but to be gathered up and used 
in a fire. That's a picture of where the psalmist goes next. God is doing something with misfits and making misfits valuable. In verse 21, we see thankfulness for our salvation. In verse 22, we then see the psalmist explain exactly how salvation, or the picture rather, of how salvation has come about, and that is this. Look at verse 22, the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The two-by-four that the builders have rejected has become the most prominent two-by-four in the whole building. The cornerstone would have been the most important stone as all of the stones are built off of and connected to this strong stone. It had to be square. It had to be strong. It is the most prominent. The picture we receive is of Israel. Israel was a warped stone. Israel was a crumbling stone. Israel was rejected by the nations. Israel was trampled by the nations. Israel was abused by the nations. Israel was taken advantage of by the nations, enslaved and taken captive. And as they're coming out of oppression, the, declare, the, the declaration is that God has taken the stone that the builders of this world have rejected. And he is using it for his building, making it the chief cornerstone. What he's essentially saying is that Israel has become the supreme nation. The nation above all other nations. They are the finest nation in the world. They are the most prominent of all nations because they are God's nation. In verse 23, he says, this is the Lord's doing, meaning we've done nothing. Our military strength is not the reason we've become most prominent, but rather, he says, this is the Lord's doing. It's it's pure grace. Now, the original application for this would have certainly been the nation of Israel. But when we get to the New Testament, Jesus says this verse is actually about himself. In verse, uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44, Jesus quotes this, applying it to his own work and his own identity. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, it is said that Jesus is... And he quotes this verse, the stone that the builders rejected, which God has made the cornerstone. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it says that the church is built on this stone. We, as part of the church, are a bunch of misfit stones that have been reshaped by God, miraculously used in this building, built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If we apply this to Israel as a nation alone, we would miss the broader salvific work of Jesus Christ. This is an application now to what we might call true Israel. This global body of blood-bought citizens of God's kingdom. This spiritual nation 
from America to Africa, from Europe to China, a, na a, a nation that covers all nations in the world. And it's not a nation ruled by physical powers, but ruled by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit in lordship to Jesus Christ. A nation that con consists of Jews and Gentiles. A nation that consists of black folks and white folks and Hispanic folks and Asian folks. A nation of rich people and poor people. Brought together as a building that will endure. Once rejected by the world. Or you could even say currently being rejected by the world. And this is all highlighted in the, in, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Oh, what an application. Rejected. The stone rejected. The misfit in the world. We don't know what to do with him. We can't contain him. We can't stop him. We can't shut him up. And so we will crucify him. And through that crucifixion, God did something. It's the Lord's doing. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. God has done something. As a building block rejected by the world has been made the chief cornerstone. Oh, and the day the Lord has made is not merely Easter Sunday, but every single Sunday we gather together and worship the risen Christ. We declare this is the Lord's doing. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you are part of the blood-bought church of God, your destiny has been reshaped. Now, a lot of times when we talk about destiny, we think this world. We think money, power, significance, fame, and popularity. No, listen, the world rejects. You might not find all of these things in this world. And so when I say your destiny has been reshaped, I'm not saying that you are going to be the most prominent recognized by this world. But what I'm saying is that your ultimate destiny, your eternal destiny, your, the recognition of the Father, the fact that God knows you, you're known by Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has sealed you, your, destiny, your, your eternal destiny has been reshaped because of this stone, this cornerstone. In the world, you might be seen as worthless. You at one time were under the curse. You were under and worthy of the wrath of God. But God has reshaped you. Reshaped all of us, turning us into a building that will last. Not by our doing, not by our works of righteousness, but God's doing. It is grace. As the hymn says that we often sing, how firm a foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All 
Other ground is sinking sand. The world rejected him. The world despised him, yet God raised him from the dead. Jesus ascended to heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and currently he rules and he reigns. A friend of mine lost his, his mother. She, she passed. And I was talking to a, a, another friend of mine, a pastor, and I explained how my friend lost his mother. And, and I said, would you pray for him? His mother was his rock. And my pastor friend shocked me with what he said next. He said, well, he started praying. He said, I'll pray for him. He started praying. And he said, Father, I pray that this man's mother will not be his rock. He kind of rebuked me. Listen, if your mother is your rock, when your mother passes, everything falls. If your spouse is your rock, when they're not around, they're disappointing you, your rock fails you. Singles, if finding a spouse is your rock, if you don't find a spouse, you will be failed in this life. If your friends are your rock, when they don't invite you to the party, Alton, Your, your rock fails you. I'm just playing. If your job is your rock, when you don't perform well or you get laid off, your rock fails you. My point is simply this. Your rock is not your mama. Your rock is not your job. Your rock is not acceptance and popularity. Your rock is not getting good grades in school. Your rock is not your friend. Your rock is not your spouse. Your rock is Christ. And on this rock, we build our lives. And only this rock is secure. This is the chief cornerstone. This is the rock that will remain for all of eternity, and this rock will never be shaken. Though the world turn against me, I have Christ, and I am secure. Number three, because of Christ's sacrifice, you are secure. Just to catch you up, the first one is because of Christ's righteousness, you're secure. The second one is because of Christ's success, you are secure. And the third one is because of Christ's sacrifice, you are secure. If I could use a war analogy at this point. Imagine you're in the middle of a battle. And you are the only one left, the sole survivor. All of your comrades are dead. And the enemy is coming around you. You have no hope. But here comes Joel Kurz in a Blackhawk. Right, it's just me. <laughs> they let me have one. And I swoop down right where you're at. And I let down that cord. And I say, grab a hold. And you grab the cord and we take off. And I pull you up. 
as you're being pulled up and as you're crawling into the Black Hawk, you're crying out, save me! Save me! Now, a fool might look at you and say, bro, you are, you're already saved. You're not down there anymore. But what you know is this. If this Black Hawk goes down, you are lost. If I push you out of my chopper, you are lost. You are saved, yes, but you are still being saved. Do you get the picture? Meaning if at any moment I choose to stop saving you, you are lost. As Israel is coming out of oppression, they are saved. Yet it's interesting to me as we get to these verses that are the verses which are sung on that Palm Sunday, verses 25 and 26. They cry out, save us. Verse 25, save us, we pray. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us success. What they're saying is this, is our salvation is based on your continual ability to save us. Like, your salvation is not something that's just a thing of the past. Getting saved isn't something that happened when you were 18 years old or 10 years old or 30 years old. Getting saved, so regeneration is, you, you, there was a moment when you were regenerated, you were made new, but, but, but salvation is, is, is always contingent on God's grace. Meaning if God loses his ability to save, we are lost. Or if God chooses to stop saving us, we are lost. In, in, on Wednesday nights, we're watching this film together, and one of the things that one of the preachers mentioned in the film is that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but the gospel is for Christians too. We are people who continually need to be crying out to the Lord, save us. Oh, I, no, 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 no. I'm not doubting that I'm saved, but what I'm saying is, is God save me, keep saving me, and for all of eternity, keep me saved. I'm always dependent on His grace. Never in any moment in my life, past, present, or future, will I stand before God without need of His salvation. And so we cry out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save me. Save us, God. And that is a cry, not out of desperation, but a cry of praise of thankfulness, knowing that He is the God who saves. He has the ability who saves. And we see who He is in the next verse, verse 26, that the people apply directly to Jesus Christ. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is the one who comes. Blessed is the one who comes who has the ability to save. Oh, how blessed is Jesus Christ. Now, in what way does he save? Well, we see this in the next verse. In verse 27, it says, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cord upon the, the horns of the altar. Here we see this procession leading them to a sacrifice. Coming out of oppression, 
they're going to offer a sacrifice before God. This takes us back all the way to the the beginning of the Bible. When we see that blood is required for sin. For those who are guilty because of their sin, the penalty is death. Yet we also see in the Old Testament that God willingly accepts a sacrifice as an atonement for sin. In the Old Testament, a priest would lay his hand on a lamb on the altar, and in doing so, he would, that would essentially symbolize the transferred guilt of the people, the sin of the people, onto this lamb. Here we see them, this, this procession leading them to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar would be the four corners in which the blood of the sacrifice is placed by the fingers of the priest. Now, year after year, sacrifices are offered. But sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs could never really take away sins. This verse is also interesting as it says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords. This is just a little side note for you. This is a freebie. And this might take me two extra minutes in my sermon. That could also be translated, lay down the branches before the sacrifice. Bring a procession of branches. Martin Luther translated that, adorn the feast with leaves. This this brings to mind a picture of, as a sacrifice is on its way, branches being laid before that sacrifice that is going to be slaughtered. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what the people had in mind on Palm Sunday, but it might have been. But I don't think they understood the significance of what was happening either way. Do we realize that as Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem that day, he was not only coming as a better priest, he was not only coming as a better temple, He was coming as a better sacrifice. One who is going to lay down his life for the sheep. We see here the method in which God saves, and that is the blood of a sacrifice. How is it that we can be called righteous before God? How is it that we could be built onto the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? Jesus bore the guilt of our sin. Jesus became sin for us so that those who are in sin might be saved. Palm Sunday was not about a military warlord who's coming in to take down Rome. But Palm Sunday was about this victorious Savior who's coming in to take down sin and death through giving his life that Friday on the tree so that sinners might be saved. Like I said earlier, your your belief about tomorrow shapes your attitude today. The attitude that we are to have in this psalm, 
in response to this is one of thankfulness. That's why on either end, we see this chorus, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Why? For His steadfast love endures forever, meaning you're secure. Are you thankful? You're secure in Christ. Are you thankful? Let all true Israel say, the steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the church say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who keep stumbling into old sins say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those of us who wonder how God could love somebody like me say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who don't have an ounce of righteousness to offer before God say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who can never stand in the presence of God without Jesus say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let all of the misfits of the world say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who are building their lives upon the rock of Jesus Christ say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ say, His steadfast love endures forever. Church, He is my righteousness. He is my rock. He is my sacrifice. Hosanna! Lord, save us. And He will save us. He will deliver us because His steadfast love endures forever. Let us all say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord that is our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. For Jesus Christ, we thank You for the Gospel, this covenant that You've made with us. And we know, God, that Your steadfast love endures forever. You will not lose us even though we turn against you, even though we often feel like giving up on you or that you've given up on us, we know the truth. And that is that your steadfast love endures forever. God, fill us with thankfulness. Not just on Sunday mornings, but Monday through Saturday. I pray that as we face the trials, the challenges, the discouragements, and the setbacks of life, that we will be people of thankfulness because we know who holds tomorrow. We are in your hands, and your steadfast love endures forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.